Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 21st, 2012. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's also the end of the world as we know it. And I commit to you, I will never sing more than that on the air at one time because I cannot carry a tune in a bucket, in a backpack. I know that. But yes, today, the world is going to end. We're all going to die in a fiery blaze as the Mayans rise and eat the hearts of our children. Wait a minute, that's, that's, that's not going to happen? Okay, then we might as well go on with the Friday show, since it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. It's been December 21st for a whole dadgone day on parts of the world, and I talked to some people over there last night. They're there, and they're doing just fine, so I think we'll do okay as well. Uh, the weather forecaster on uh, the news a couple days ago put up a little joke slide. I put it on Facebook. He said the temperature today was supposed to have a high of 1,250 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 1,147 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, right now, it's a chilly 41 degrees, so I'm not too worried. But since it is Friday, it's time for your calls, in all seriousness, to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Now, if you just downloaded this show for the first time and you're not familiar with it, and you're about to pick your phone up and start dialing that number to talk to me live, you got to think for a second. That's why it's a think line. You downloaded it. It's pre-recorded. You can't call in live. It doesn't work that way. You call that number. You leave your message in two minutes or less. If you're smart, you make your point or you ask your question in the first 30 seconds, and if you don't get that done, you're probably not going to get through the screening. Then you give me the details. If you do that, you will likely get through the screening. We get about 30 to 40% of the calls that come in online. That means if you call a few times over a couple weeks, you're probably going to get on. We're backed up a little right now. It's going to stay that way. Announcement today. Next week, on December 24th, if we're still here, which I think we will be, um, we will be on with the Christmas special. And then we will be shut down uh, for the entire Christmas week. I do this every year. It goes back to my roots in the telecommunications industry. Our next regular scheduled program will be on New Year's Day. Again, if the mines don't kill us and we're still here, it will be... Uh, Tuesday, uh, January, or Tuesday, January 1st, 2013 will be the next, uh, scheduled show for the Survival Podcast. My son's coming into town. Hopefully we're closing on our house. More on that when we get through the housekeeping, uh, next week as well. So it couldn't be a better time of year for us to be closed down than it, than it is this year. But I do that every year. And I always suggest that to you guys in the audience, If you can shut down work and business and everything for that week, I know a lot of people can't, but if you can, um, it's been a tradition in my household that goes back to the first year I spent with, with my, my son and my wife. Um, it actually goes back further than that because I am in a community, I was in the communications field back then and it was just something the industry did by and large, especially with contractors, which I was at the time. Um, so it's just something we carried forward. It's been very good for us. It's it's a chance to you know what? Don't send me an email and expect an answer. Uh, we'll we'll kind of filter through a little bit of it here and there, but basically it's it's off for that week, and it's a good chance to be together. So if you can emulate that, that would be great. Okay, it's time to get your calls. Sorry to ramble on. It is that time of year. I've had a hard time feeling Christmassy this year, maybe because we're so far from family and all, but that's about to change. Um, 
So I'm kind of rambling there, but let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home since, I guess, the first year after I got out of the Army. Uh, I used to go to bookstores and read things because I was broke, and I couldn't afford to buy stuff, and the libraries had the old, the old stuff. So I'd go to bookstores, and I'd, I'd get a cup of coffee, and I would read. And uh, one of the things I found during that period of time was a copy of Backwoods Home. And when I read that, I went, gee, that's like really my Backwoods Home. And uh, I was a subscriber to it for a while, kind of just started buying it off the shelf here and there and reading it online. But I'm a subscriber again. And it's been that long because I believe that when you look at the entire industry that sprung up around homesteading and self-reliance, self-sufficiency, they were doing it before anybody was doing it. They do it right. Uh, I consider Dave Duffy now a personal friend, and that's kind of weird for me that the Survival Podcast led me to meet a guy that I had read for so many years. But, um, you know, it's a great idea to subscribe to Backwoods Home. They do good work. They spread the libertarian message, and they keep focused on the things that actually work. And, they, you know, the politics are a little bit in the front, a little bit in the back, and everything in the middle is all about what you can do. So check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Um, I have people all the time ask me, well, what do you do for health insurance? And I, you know, I, I buy the cheapest I can get with the highest deductible I can get because frankly, I don't go to the doctor unless I absolutely 100% need to. If I have a, a yield sign in my spleen from a car wreck, I'd like to be taken to a surgeon, please. But otherwise, I at least try to address my own needs first with gentle things like herbs. And I, you know, I, I feel very blessed that we found Western Botanicals as a sponsor because I don't trust a lot of people in the industry because everybody's got something that's going to cure cancer or make you know you fly like an angel or some other nonsensical crap. Where Western Botanicals just says, hey, here's the stuff that works. It's all 100% organically grown or wildcrafted. And real people answer the phone, and they help you figure out what will work best for you. And they'll tell you at certain times, look, you really probably need to go to your doctor for this. So check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. The only complaint I had with them in the past, their website, their old website, was just a disaster. They had such cool stuff and all. They've got a new website as well. It makes everything a lot easier. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up, remember to check out TSP Gear and tspcopper.com. They're both great places. tspgear.com, tspcopper.com. Little shout-out, 13 Skills is rocking and rolling. Um, let me give you an update right now on it. So far, 13skills.com has 3,609 members who have set 36,872 goals for 2013. The 13 and 13 Skills Challenge, we'd love to have you over there. And one reminder, we do have that blog contest. Uh, you've got till midnight tonight, when the world ends as we know it, to get your entry in for the 13 Skills blog contest. There'll be a link in today's show notes if you want to know more about that. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps and first responders like paramedics, email me before you join with service discount on the subject line. Tell me what you did or what you're doing. Prior service does qualify, folks, and uh, retired does qualify. People have asked, yes, if you did it or you're doing it, it qualifies. I'll give you a discount code before you join, not after you join, uh, to thank you for your service, folks. All right, before I take your first call, I do have a little announcement just because like, I'm really excited, and I didn't tell you guys about the problem except some of you guys on the Zello channel I told about the problem um, because I you know, just didn't want to put any bad air out there or anything. Uh, but we ran into a hiccup with our new house. 
no problem with the loan. Everything's good to go. A bunch of documentation had to be done. Dorothy and I had to work, you know, for about two days straight to get caught up with year-end accounting to give them some stuff because what we had wasn't enough. But that was all fine and well. Well, then we ran into a real snafu that I think a lot of folks might run into with buying property right now. So I want to tell you about it because it might help you if you end up in this situation. We offered um, $230,000 for this house. And it seemed like a good offer, and they took it, and we're approved, and we're going to buy it, and everybody's happy. Uh, not so much. Because then this guy called the appraiser went out there and said, this property appraises at $200,000. And um, the guy was already relocated through Xerox, and he wanted Xerox to come up with the money that he lost because they committed something to him about his relocation, and that's why he took the relocation. And this went on for like two weeks. And basically, we just held firm. And they're like, well, if you come up with $30,000, and I'm like, if I come up with $30,000, I'm keeping it. All right, I'm not giving you money to go upside down on the house. And we said, you know, I do think the appraiser was a little bit harsh. If it was reappraised, maybe it would appraise at 205-ish, so we offered an extra 5K, and that was it, and they wanted more, and eventually we got them to crumble. And so I got to come up with an extra 5K, and they wanted some help with closing as well that initially wasn't in there. And we're not thrilled about coming up with more money, but we are thrilled about getting a house for basically $30,000 less, um, which helps out in a myriad of ways. So um, I, I think that what I want you guys to learn from this <clears throat> is as the seller, if this happens to you, and it's happened to me before as the seller, I hate to put it this way, but unless you've got a really, really, really motivated buyer, you're screwed. You're absolutely screwed because if you say, well, we're just going to not take your offer and get another offer, any appraiser that comes in to appraise that property, when they, when they pull up all the info on it's going to see an appraisal is just done. And it's very rare that a second appraiser is going to appraise the property much different than the first appraiser. Part of it's to cover your ass and part of it's a formula that they use. So I got bad news if it happens to you as a seller. As a buyer, stand your ground. Stand your ground, and often it works out very well for you. The place that we brought, bought in Arlington, we got for $14,000 less, and we didn't even have to come up with anything. It was like, we're just not doing it if you don't, if you don't come down, and they just did. So um, understand that, but also when you're looking at property, if something seems way overpriced to you, And even if you would like, oh, I think it's high, just know that this is something that can come up. And it's happening a lot more now than it used to. Part of the game that used to be played that led us to the mortgage mess. And I saw this on a lot of properties that closed, both by friends and properties we bought in this period of time. When it was like, oh, you want a mortgage? There's your mortgage. Like, well, can I rubber stamp some more money for you? You know, when you go in to buy a house and they go, this is all you're going to spend? Do you know you can get more money than this? Are you sure you don't want some more? Let me get it out of the drawer when it was back like that. So like the first house that we bought, we paid $84,250 for. Guess what the appraisal came in at? $84,250. The house we bought in Pennsylvania, we paid $137,500 for. Guess what the appraisal came in for? Ding, 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 $137,500 to the penny. And it used to be that it always seemed like whatever the house needed to appraise at, it appraised at just that, unless it was undervalued, and then you would get a fair appraisal value higher. For instance, when we bought our place here in Arkansas, we paid seventy-four for it, 
And the appraisal came in at like 86,250 or something like that. And that was like seven, eight years ago. So that was a, an actual fair appraisal. But this just matched the, it was, it was obvious. And, and when your real estate agent would say, you need to get an appraisal done, he'd be like, yeah, get one of this guy, this guy, or this guy to do it. And they did with the home inspector too. It's like they couldn't tell you which one to do, but they would circle a couple on a list, you know, and, and Now the, the the lender orders the appraisal, and you don't really have any say over that. You can still pick your inspector, but um, anyway, I just wanted you guys to know, and I was really kind of feeling up against the wall because one, my wife has moved into that house. She's already done it. We not a thing. It's all the stuff still here in boxes, but in her head, we already live there. And as a, a provider, I want to give her what she wants too. I'm in love with it. So that's another one. And three, you guys, you know, I ran a sale to raise some funds. And you guys came through, and I didn't want to come on here and go, oh, guys, the deal fell apart. I've got the Jeff Lawton work. I mean, there was a lot of things, and I'll tell you what. I, I, I came up with the extra five on the offer because of all that. If all of that wasn't in play, I probably would have played it even harder and just said, you know what, sink or swim, buddy. Um, and if you can do it, it's probably when you're in that situation, I want you to learn from this as a negotiator Every other option the seller has is worse than caving in. Unless they're, and we knew that what he owed on the place, he'd still take a little money out of it. Um, and you can usually find that out with the listing and, and stuff like that. Um, but unless the guy just can't afford to do it, like there's no logistically cannot do it, there's no better option. What are you going to do? Bring somebody in to rent the place and then they're going to make it worse. Wait for, I mean, all the options suck. And caving in sucks the least of all the options that suck. So if you find yourselves on that, I know a lot of you guys are shopping for property. Hold your ground. Now let's go ahead and take that first call today. Jack, this is Ryan in Washington. I'm calling in response to a caller that called in for show 1031 for uh, November the 30th. And the question was about backstops and planting into it. And I know that a lot of people have the impulse to use their backstop as something else. One of the things that a lot of people seem to forget is that hardwoods can be extremely useful, not just in retaining the soil, but also for small craft projects doing, you know, creating hobby wood. When we talk about permaculture and hugaculture and all these other things, that seems to be left out. I understand that the primary purpose is for creating food, but at the same time, we can also be creating a secondary income by creating hardwoods to either make into furniture or sell to people that do make hobby furniture. Uh, some of the best ones that you can use, pine, birch, poplar, ash, willow, aspen, cottonwood, uh, alder, all of these are fast-growing hardwood trees that you can plant, and the root structure will enhance the burn. The other benefit you're going to get if you're creating a backstop is that the trees will exceed the vertical limit, the, the vertical limit of your fire, and you want to plant them out beyond the lateral limit of your fire. That way they can suck up bullets. Now, trees themselves are not going to really stop bullets. There's a lot of hollow space in between the branches and the leaves, but they will deflect, they will absorb energy, and they'll slow down any stray rounds that do happen to go out. So uh, just a thought, if people want to look into getting some of these trees, the best time to do it is towards the end of winter, You need to contact uh, a local forester for any of your local forest, uh, forest management companies, warehouse, or any of those, and usually they'll have some leftover ones there. Hardwoods need to be planted after the last frost. So just wanted to point that out, and uh, thanks again for the show. Take care. Bye. 
Actually, it's a great point, and the only thing you got wrong is that the, you know the main point is to grow food. It's not. Uh, it, it's actually something I leave out a lot, and I should talk a lot about a lot more. Permaculture is about growing a, a, anything from a community to a forest, and doing so in a holistic, interrelated, resilient manner that creates self-sustaining and self-replicating systems. Uh, that sounds real complicated, but it's not. It just means it better sustain itself, and if you do it right, it should replicate itself. It should, instead of being something that somebody does in one place and everybody goes, wow, it should be something like people go, I'm going to do that too, and it, then people can follow a pattern and replicate it to meet their needs. And that means it needs to provide everything that we need, not just food. It needs to provide food, it needs to pre provide water, it needs to provide recreation, it needs to provide building materials. It needs to be uh, something that provides fuel. There's entire permaculture developments that are specifically designed to grow fuel wood. So there's certain trees that if you pollard them, which is basically you, you cut them off uh, fairly high up, about head high, and then they grow back. They grow back really fast, and you can cut them over and over and over every couple of years and take wood out for fuel. There's systems uh, in Morocco that are set up to do just that. So it, it's a great point, and... There's also, whenever you see, let's say, Jeff Lawton, the master himself, plant a forest, he'll say, well, like, this is a silky oak, right? And this tree's going to grow huge. It's going to provide all kinds of mulch. It's going to provide biomass. It's a good support species. It's going to provide acorns. That's going to be good for the wildlife. But at the end of its life, it will be some of the highest quality timber you'll ever see. We're still going to use wood to, to build things. And when you're looking at something like, And where this came from, for those that maybe didn't hear it, a guy says, hey, I'm going to put in a shooting berm. Well, this is a great big dirt mound, and I'm going to be shooting bullets into it, and I'm worried about the lead, and how can I mitigate that? What can I plant there? You know, I'd like to do something useful with it. Yeah, I mean, planting some things into it that are more of a material-based are a great idea, especially things that grow fast. The one tree I didn't hear you mention that if you're in the south, southwest, grows really fast, so fast that it almost becomes a nuisance in a lot of situations, and it's put holes in more than you know one one tractor uh, tire, one truck tire, definitely in its existence, is the mesquite tree. But you think about mesquite, you can let mesquite grow up to about three feet, and you can start cutting it every year. And it just grows back, and it, it's hard, and it burns hot. It is an incredible cooking fuel. It, 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 there is very few things you can do to a piece of beef that will make it taste better than just to cook it over mesquite. So there's like another one. And this could be done with things like things that are used for growing stock material, for making gun stocks and things. You can do anything with it. So I think it's a great point. I thank you for bringing it up. And we'll try to do, as we go into 2013, some permaculture shows that are more about growing woodlots and growing fuel forests and growing timber. Because this is a component. If we're still going to build things out of wood, we got to figure out how to do that sustainably too. If we want to get rid of you know 500 acres of pine trees, well, that 500 acres of pine trees is providing a lot of timber in about 15 to 18 year rotations. You got to figure out another way to do that with higher quality, longer lasting material and still keep the system sustainable. That's good stuff. Maybe that's a great topic to bring Jeff back on the show about. Thank you for that. Let's take another one. Jack, I'm calling with a question regarding safe places to store silver in my house. Over the past year or so, I've invested quite a bit of money in junk silver, and I've been storing it in a large two-foot by three-foot fire safe in my house. kind of makes me nervous having all my investment in one place in the house in case of robbery. Uh, there are many potential cubby holes and hiding places where I could stash portions of it, but then my concern is what to do in case of a fire. 
First off, would silver coins really melt in the house fire? And have you seen tiny fireproof boxes for coin collections? Any other ideas or for a safe way of storing? Uh, any other ideas for safe ways of storing silver would be appreciated. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, the thing about accumulating silver is once you start doing it, it feels good, so you keep doing it. And eventually, you get this really good problem of I got all this silver and I want to protect it, and I'm not sure exactly how. So let me give you a couple of things. One, if you want to store anything valuable in your home, the most secure thing that you could do is have a, a professional safe company come in, find a place where you can get to the concrete foundation of your home, and they can put them in really deep because it doesn't. Have, it can go down into the subsurface of the earth. They'll put a sleeve in there and put in a drop safe. And if you put stuff in a drop safe, ain't nobody nowhere getting it out without a jackhammer, and even that's going to be hard. And the way these work, they're just round. They're not that big looking. The top of them will be about, you know, if you take your hands and make a circle and pull them out, you got about six inches between your thumbs and six inches between your fingers. They're about that big. And they have a combination on them. Some of them have a key. Some of them do a combo and a key, so you need both. It all depends on how secure you want it to be. Generally, they'll have four large bolts that, when the thing is locked, they come out and extend into the concrete. Those bolts will look a lot like if you go to a bank and you look at their vault and you see the bolts that come out and go into the wall, they look like that. They're not quite as big, but they're generally about an inch in diameter. Uh, it's secure, and the fire's going to be uh, of no real consequence because you're down underneath and heat goes up more than down. Um, and then the good thing about silver, if it does melt together, it's still silver. The underlying value is still there. So if you wanted my advice for the most secure thing you could do to keep valuables safe, whether it's silver or anything in your home, completely protected, I don't care if you get a tornado and it wipes everything flat to the foundation, it's still going to be there. It's a drop safe into the concrete. It ain't cheap. But if it's valuable enough what you're protecting, it's probably worth it. Another idea is, okay, you've got your firebox. One of the things that people worry about with fireboxes, well, somebody can pick it up and run away with it. Make it hard to find. See if you can find a cheap firebox, right? Something as big as possible, but cheap. And think if you're a criminal. Where are some of the first places you're going to look? It's going to be the master bedroom, the master bedroom closet, and under the master bedroom bed. Those are, these are places that other than the obvious stuff as you're walking through a, 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 a living room with stuff that's there, that's the first place a burglar that knows what he's doing goes. Take it, fill it up with something like lead for your bullet casting projects or um, rocks or thumb heavy. Put it there. Um, it then becomes, wow, look what I found. And you got a really heavy object that really encumbers the criminal with getting away with it. And when they get it wherever they're going and bash the hell out of it and finally get into it, you would hope that maybe you could rig something up so that when they opened it, you got that sound where it goes, wah, wah, right? That, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? So that's one kind of a contingency plan there with creating the illusion that they've hit the jackpot. Because most criminals, when they think, that, oh, this is full of good stuff, They want to haul ass with it. If it's really heavy, you know what they're thinking. Gold and silver, right? So your gold and silver is hidden as best you can with as much hiding capacity as possible. And then there's this box full of rocks that they get to, to run out of the house with. Just saying. All right, so that's another thing. A lot of folks out there have guns and have gun safes. Um, if you got a good, solid gun safe, something that's secure, because you know it's a target, right? If somebody breaks in your house and sees a gun safe, they're going to try to get in there. So a good, quality gun safe 
Um, your silver going in there is probably not a bad idea. I mean, that's that's just an obvious thing if you have that as a redundancy. What I don't want people to rule out is safe deposit boxes. Now, safe deposit boxes have taken on a new light with the uh, with the Patriot Act. It used to be a safe deposit box was basically seen as not a financial relationship. It was simply a storage place in a bank. One of the many things buried in the Patriot Act as they were stripping your liberty and telling you it was to protect you was a redefining of what constituted a financial relationship. So anything that would allow the government or the IRS to seize a bank account or freeze a bank account or inspect a bank account would also give them the same authority to do that with a safe deposit box. To me, it's not enough of a risk not to have some precious metal in a safe deposit box. It's a redundancy. It's damn well as safe as it gets. What if the banks fail? Come on, right? If you got banks about to go to pot, the accounts are going to go to pot before the vault goes to pot, and you should have plenty of time to go to the bank and get your stuff out of the vault. Just pick a smaller bank, pick something close to you, and if something starts to worry you, go get it. But in the meantime, it's as safe as it can be. So that's another way to do it. Another way you could hold some silver and be you know, very protected would be uh, with the Lakota Bank. The free Lakota Bank would allow you to hold silver in their vault. Uh, now they're going to charge you a fee to hold it, but that's you know, if you hold enough of it, they'll waive the fee. And so if you're holding more than $3,000 with a commitment to at least a year of time, they will waive the fee, and that's another way to hold silver. Now you're going to only hold their kind of silver, but it's yet another way. There's also the ability you can look into private secure storage, which is basically like a safe deposit box. It's not really a safe deposit box, not held by a blending or a banking institution. And you can look for private secure storage in your yellow pages or go online and search for it in your city, and you'll find places that will allow that. And people keep everything there from precious metals to very expensive wine collections. So it can be climate controlled or not. It all depends on what you want. That's another option. But the safest, most secure option inside of the walls of your home is a drop safe into the foundation. Um, if you have that, it's as secure as anything can ever be. And I'm telling you, you ain't getting into one. Uh, my father had one of these in his business in Jacksonville, Florida for years. And he had a high cash flow business. So once you get a certain amount of cash, it would go into a, a binder and it gets slid into this thing. Um, he was held up once. My grandfather was held up once and shot. I told you that story this week. The place was broken into about two or three times a year. Plenty of times you could tell the person found it. No one ever got into it. No one ever got into it, not once. You can see one time a guy found a, a hammer or something that he used for working on the tires and beat the living crap out of it. Didn't get a dime. In fact, it still worked. He didn't even fix He like When it was all dust busted up, He just opened it, it opened, and went, I don't need to replace it. It looked like that until the day he sold the place, and he sold it with the place when he sold the location. So that's my best advice for you in the home. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Bob in eastern Pennsylvania with an expert panel question for either Frank Sharp or uh, Joe Nobody here, maybe both. The question is on body armor on bad guys, and here it is. I want to know what happens if an armor-wearing bad guy gets shot in the body armor, and here's why. The recent tragedies in Connecticut and Colorado have me thinking about what I, or what I would hope another concealed carry citizen would do in that situation. I have a 380 auto. Bad guy has body armor. If I hit him in the center of the chest, in the center of the armor with my 380, what would happen? What does that feel like for the bad guy? Assuming there is no penetration through the vest, is it like a punch, 
like getting hit with a sledgehammer? Would it make him fall over to give the time to either run away or get on him? Is it the kind of thing a person needs to lay down and recover from, or is it essentially an inconvenience? Does it make a difference if the bad guy is trained versus untrained, or is the effect the same? My only experience with this is TV and movies, and I'm guessing that is not an accurate reflection of reality. When I play this out in my head, I can't figure out what happens after the shot and the hit. Appreciate any info or clarity you can offer. Thanks for the show, Jack. Have a good day. Well, I have my own thoughts on that, but I figure I'd go ahead and kick it over to one of our expert panel members. So I'm going to kick that over to Frank Sharp Jr. We'll hear from him. I'll come back and give you my thoughts, and we'll go on to the next one. Hi, Jack. This is Frank from Fortress Defense responding to Bob from Pennsylvania's question, which was, what can we expect to happen when we shoot someone who's wearing body armor? I would suggest that we can expect the exact same thing to happen to someone wearing body armor as someone who isn't wearing body armor, which is nothing. Uh, most people, when shot, don't realize they're shot, and the armor does, to an extent, take that energy and spread it out over an area, and we do get people who may get a little bit of the wind knocked out of them. They may feel that punch. They may or may not. It depends on the level of body armor they're wearing and the caliber they're shot with. So there's quite a bit of, of missing pieces of the puzzle that we would have to fill in to even answer the question. But as a defensive shooter and the people in your audience who own guns for defense, uh, I would not expect your shots hitting people in body armor to have any effect, and I would train accordingly. Because of that, we've actually changed our targeting area. Um, if your audience can envision a standard silhouette target, we've actually taken a 3x5 index card and we place it on the upper third of the torso. Uh, the top edge would be right at the clavicle, maybe a little above, and that 3x5 index card ends up being our targeting area. What happens there is we're getting rounds into more vital areas in the chest, and we're also probably going to have about, on average, half of our rounds go over the top edge of the body armor. Um, if you can superimpose body armor across that 3x5 index card, you've got about half of it still exposed. So that's one way to start addressing this in your training. The other thing that Bob mentioned that I think probably bears talking about here is his choice of a 380 as a defensive caliber. That is the low end of the spectrum of what we would recommend. And these days, we are making 9mm pistols so small that I really can't in good conscience tell anybody to buy a 380 anymore. There really isn't much of a reason for that. Uh, perhaps he has one I haven't thought of, but we can get a gun small enough in 9mm, so we should probably consider bumping up our caliber there. And I hope that answers his question. If it doesn't, he can feel free to call me directly at Fortress Defense uh, 708 522-8060. He can contact me by email at info at fortressdefense.com or frank at fortressdefense.com. Our website is fortressdefense.com, and we also have a level one pistol class happening in Hempstead, Texas on January 19th and 20th, so any of the listeners who are in the Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma area, if you want to join us there, go ahead and get a hold of us, and we'll get you signed up. So this is Frank from Fortress Defense wishing that you all have victory. Thank you. I find that an outstanding answer, and the I think the answer of is expect nothing to happen is the right answer no matter what the situation you're in is. And I think moving the targeting area up more into, basically you're talking about the, the throat, 
the neck, the chin, and directly below. And, hey, you know, you get hit in the head. That generally has a pretty good way of uh, making your day a bad day. And there's, there's people in these situations need to have their day become a bad day. So that whole area there is generally a much better target area and somebody wearing body armor or not. The reason we go center mass with our training is because we have a lot of, lot of potential to be off, right? Take your finger and put dead center mass in your chest, right about um, just above your sternum uh, or your xiphoid process, which is when you come down your sternum, that part that gives, they tell you not to push on when you're uh, doing CPR. You come two fingers up about right there. Now, take your, take your thumb and put it there and take your, your, uh, your, your long finger, your middle finger, and reach and go in a circle around your body and then do it with the other hand so you can go around the other side. And you'll see that almost the full width of your hand, any place hit in there unarmored it is a pretty nasty place to get hit. And there's really no place on your body that you can say that about the head, even a big-headed person. The thing about headshots is they're usually either lethal or superficial. If they hit to the outside anywhere where the skull's curved, the skull does a great job of causing bullets to glance. That's why they said during the Civil War that you prayed to get shot in the head. You're either going to be okay or you're going to be dead. You're not going to be laying on, the, on a table having your legs sawed off by a guy that doesn't know what else to do and then dying later of gangrene anyway. So I think it's great advice. Let me throw in this, though. There is always the best place to target somebody. But then when you're getting shot at or you're in a place where you're taking cover and concealment, you may or may not be able to get a shot with good conscience off at that area because you also have to realize you've got people running around. If this is an active shooter in a populated area, your responsibility as a, somebody there as an armed citizen goes way beyond taking out the threat. It also involves making sure you don't do more damage by hitting somebody else. You have to be thinking about all of this. If I got a guy armored up, and I've moved off the X, and I've got some distance between he and I, and I know he's armored up because I can tell by looking at him, and I don't have a really good, easy shot at that thoracic area up there in the neck or the head, maybe because he's got cover concealment there. But I got two big, fat-ass legs. Buddy, I will pump those legs so full of lead. And I promise you, if you start breaking femurs, you might not kill him and you might. It all depends. But he ain't going to be running around happy. You look at the femurs, so you go from the knees up to the groin. And specifically, the groin where the leg joins the pelvis into that, that ball area, not the balls, but to that ball where that, and if you've ever butchered a deer and you cut that out, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that ball hinges in there. You hit somebody there. One, you've got major blood vessels that you can hemorrhage out. But two, I'll tell you what, this whole people getting shot and not knowing it, you break a bone with it. You start getting into a joint, they're going to know it. And they're going to know it every time. Um, and, it, you know, if it takes more than one shot, it's a big target, it's a big area, and at least now you've got, the, you know, a guy that's not on his feet has a hard time fighting. And even if other if first responders are able to get there eventually, even if you can't finish the job, you've shut down this whole raging madman scenario. And let's face it, if you're dealing with an armored-up threat, you're probably dealing with that. You know, you're, muggers generally don't put body armor on, right? People don't usually break into your house with body armor. Maybe they will in the future. But when we've seen this, it's been somebody that wants to do a lot of damage, and that's why they're armored up. So I would say don't overlook peripheral targets like the legs. 
arms and things like that. I mean, this is the other thing to understand about the whole, you know, when, when the Colorado thing happened, they're like, well, he had body armor. So if even if somebody was, you know what, when you start getting hit with rounds, it changes your attitude. It, it really does. And sooner or later, you do start to create injury with impact. But I would say to anybody, you got to keep your mind beyond just center of mass. In most situations, yes, it's your best choice. But you do have to evaluate the threat. If you got an armored up threat, like Frank said, if you can hit that whole rate, if you like put your finger on your neck, go down to your Adam's apple, and go down to you feel bone, right where that bone is there, body armor almost never covers that spot. You hit somebody there, they're going down. And if you come up from there in that soft part of your neck, you get anything that gets in and damages the the, the vertebrae in the neck, you you've got it. You've got not a guarantee, but if you hit that vertebrae, you got a guy that's going down. You got a guy that even if he ain't dead, he's incapacitated, probably never going to walk again. And I know some people are, oh, you want to cripple the guy? He's trying to kill somebody. Hell yes, whatever stops him. And that's what this is. This isn't a better way to kill somebody because shoot somebody in the leg isn't. The entire concept of being an armed citizen isn't so you can kill bad guys if you get the opportunity, right? It's so that you can stop the threat. And something that's taught to you in any good concealed weapons uh, certification course. That's your, your, your duty and your goal is to stop the threat. If that happens to result in the death of the threat, then so be it. Lethal force is applicable. But it's not with the intent to kill. It's the intent to stop. So we have to evaluate the situation specifically with the intent to stop the threat by whatever means is necessary and responsible to do so. Great answer by Frank. Hopefully uh, I'll help you think a little on the peripheral of that in a little bit different way as well. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Chris from Massachusetts. Uh, I have an expert panel question for Paul Wheaton regarding uh, rocket masters. More specifically, um, I'm interested in building basically a rocket mass trash burner <laughs> uh, that would generate some heat, obviously, to be used outside, but more importantly, uh, those high exhaust uh, stack temperatures uh, would burn off, you know, if some plastic was in there or whatever, we wouldn't produce that, hopefully wouldn't produce that thick black smoke and burn off some of the nastier chemicals. I can't find any information about if that's feasible, um, whether or not it would work online. So uh, if you can pass this along to Paul Wheaton, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. As I know very little to nothing about rocket stoves, this one is going to be all Paul, and uh, when he's done, we'll come back and take another one. Hello, Chris and Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Fermies.com. Uh, wow, what an awesome topic. Uh, and this is so weird that you ask. I was on a Washington State ferry two days ago and was talking about if you take away the diesel of this rig, what might be an excellent alternative way to run this? And I thought about burning garbage. Uh, so first, the leading innova innovators in uh, rocket mass heaters would be Ernie and Erica Wisner. Uh, I have four or five podcasts with them at permies.com going into super detail on rocket mass heater stuff. And one of them, we talked about the idea of burning garbage to heat your home. Uh, there once was a guy, of course, that, that heated his home with nothing but junk mail one winter. I'm, I'm guessing, I, I think I've already shared that story uh, on the Survival Podcast in the past. Um, but you're talking about like plastics and stuff, uh, which is a passion of Ernie's. Ernie is extremely uh, passionate about how his garbage should not end up being 
solution to somebody else, which I think would be extremely well aligned with uh, Jack's ethics. Uh, take a look at the Rocket Mass Heater uh, barrel prep video on YouTube, and uh, it's one of my videos. Uh, in it, Ernie wants to burn off the paint on the barrel but is worried that the burnt-off paint won't combust completely and then go into the air. So he uses a technique that will combust the paint more completely. Um, and, and there's the rub. You, you cannot eliminate all of the pollution. Um, so, for example, when you run a rocket mass heater, you're still going to give off carbon dioxide. But you can reduce the pollution by a factor of 100 or so. Uh, if you look at my YouTube video about rocket mass heater exhaust, you will see a woman sticking her face in the exhaust and talking about how she smells smoke smell, but there's no smoke. And that's where we get the heat riser temp to about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, we are now using techniques to get closer to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We've, we're even like using this as a forge for um, uh, metalwork. Uh, so we're, we're getting the temperature way, way, way up there. And, and when uh, you're burning plastics and other kinds of garbage, the higher the temp, the cleaner the burn. And I think with the rocket mass heater stuff, we are the leading experts in how to get a really clean burn at home and get all that heat because that smoke is fuel. So let's get all the heat out of that that we can. Um, all right, so these, these podcasts with Ernie and Erica are at permies.com and I want to take this moment to say thanks to Jack and all the pod people listening to the Survival Podcast that encouraged me to start my own podcast. There's over 200 of them now. It's been an awesome ride, and we're still cranking them out. Thanks, Jack. You're awesome! Well, with uh, Paul screaming, Jack, you're awesome at the end of that one, and uh, finding out we've wrapped up this problem with the house today. This is one hell of a great Friday. Let's take another one of your calls. Hi, Jack Lee from New York calling. This is a call in response to the gentleman who was asking in episode 1031 about being more situationally aware. An additional source of information that I find useful is uh, my local county, Frez, which is the Fire Rescue Emergency Service, has a Twitter account, and they tweet uh, minimum several tweets a day. Um, ongoing uh, large um, responses, uh, things like fires, emergencies, and also any sort of disaster preparedness or relief or... Uh, information of that sort. I personally don't tweet myself, but uh, I have an account, so I subscribe. So I find it very interesting. Uh, you, can, you can get a lot of information. If your local city or county has a uh, Twitter feed, you can get a lot of information off that, okay? Thanks, Jack. Enjoy. I love the show. Keep it up. Great job. Uh, talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. I think it's a great suggestion, and a lot of places are doing it with Twitter now. I think Twitter's become more popular than Facebook for it because it's more almost like an, an alert, an instant message or something. Um, there's a couple things that you could do to maybe declutter de 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 Twitter. One would be you could set up an account, a Twitter account, that's like the main one that you monitor on your phone and get alerts for and all that's only for really high-priority stuff instead of all the crap. Because it depends on how you use Twitter. If you're someone that uses Twitter a lot and has tons of followers and follows tons of people, you know that a lot of stuff that gets put out you never see. So... Um, I guess if you had something going on, you'd pay attention. But if you didn't know what was going on, you wouldn't know to pay extra attention. So that would be one way. Another thing is um, all Twitter accounts have an associated RSS feed. Now, they don't make it easy to find, but I'll put out a link today for mine, and all you have to do is change the username at the end. So I'll put it in the show notes. 
And what you could do with that is there are services where you can, for instance, set up that anytime an RSS thing goes out, that it triggers an email. Um, so that would be one way you could do it. People that use Outlook, Outlook has the option to monitor RSS feeds. So if you're always in your Outlook and you're not really the social media type, basically then you're receiving the RSS. It'll be in a different folder, but it'll be like an email, and it's pretty much in real time. So that's another thing that you could do to kind of declutter the social media space is get it that way. Um, and I, I think if Twitter really wanted to kind of bone up, I guess, on their ability to serve the broader market, because there's a lot of people that don't want Twitter. We don't want it. We don't want it. We don't want it. It ain't me. I'm just saying we. But there's a lot of people that feel that way. I don't want anything to do with that. They, they see it as Twitter's how I find out that you're buying bread, and frankly, I don't care. But they do want to do things like Follow their favorite NFL team or certain players or whatever. And I know it seems counter to what Twitter's all about, but if there were a way that you could basically just say, whenever this per just this one person or this one group of people tweets, I want an email about it. Um, I don't know if that's available. I've never really looked for it, but that would be a great idea, and maybe it's a product somebody could build. Um, you know, And you could use the API that sets up the RSS feed to trigger it. So... I don't know. Twitter alerts by email. I guess you could set your own account to do that. Um, but I don't know that you can say only these people. I guess you could set up an account for that. I, I don't know. But I do think it's an interesting way. And I think that um, government agencies and companies, et cetera, are using it more and more and more. The danger is how much of that stuff gets buried by the person that has 52 people they're following or 500 people they're following and we'll never see it. And the agency that puts it out assumes, well, this group of people knows and not so much. So I think it's a great idea, but I think you have to think about how you use it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Um, I have a question about how we're going to uh, heat our house. Um, and that entails a, a house that my wife and I purchased last year. Um, the house was built in 2005 We benefited from the uh, housing collapse, unlike many others. Uh, but currently it has a heat pump and um, an AC unit, central air. But my concern is with electricity rates, um, is there another option we could look at? I thought of maybe perhaps a wood burner. Um, and also if that can be integrated in with the current heat pump, Um, I know an option that's not available to us is natural gas because there's no lines going through the area we live. Um, we actually live back in the woods. But the only thing I could think of, remember being a kid, we used to have a, a wood burner and it would you know, force the air through the house. And I didn't know if that would probably be the best option I could look for. Um, any advice on this would be much appreciated. Thank you and uh, love the show. Let's take this in various levels here. Let's take it one from an emergency backup and supplemental heating and reduce electrical costs is the first one. And I think for that, if you have the space for it, that nothing beats just a good wood stove. Um, the amount of heat thrown by a freestanding wood stove is really impressive. And the newer ones with higher efficiencies and things like that, they just do a phenomenal job. So your lowest cost and most bulletproof product would be a freestanding wood stove centrally located somewhere in the house. The living room generally is a good place for that. Um, if you have that, then you're going to really reduce the strain on the overall central heating system that you have. And you've got something that it, it doesn't break, 
right? It doesn't, it doesn't, there's no electrical moving parts to it or anything like that. You put wood in it, you burn it. As long as the chimney's open and, and, and it's cleaned out, it'll run. And, and I like to have, especially if you're in a cold climate where not having heat can actually be a serious threat to you, at least one bulletproof, simple, keep it simple, stupid solution. And to me, the best one, bang for the buck, and efficiency, good quality wood stove. So that's where I would start, but if you don't want to, I understand. If you want to do something with wood burning for central heating, I would recommend a dedicated wood burning furnace, you know, exterior unit. You fill it up with wood, it burns, and it runs through your system. Now, making a system like that work with an existing system, beyond my scope. I don't know. That's something to consult with whoever you would buy it from. But those are two ways I'd look at it. Now, This is an interesting topic, though, and that's basically my answer, is I would go with a wood stove, and if you want a, a wood furnace, I'd go with one of the you know, modern exterior wood furnace units, and as far as how that works with what you already have, you got to go to the guy you're buying it from and ask him about that. But emergency heating is key. It's, it's a big thing, and if you start looking at things like backup generators, backup battery banks, stuff like that, one thing that will just eat into your power reserves like that is producing heat with electricity. Producing heat with electricity is very inefficient because basically you're using heat, converting it to electricity, and turning it back to heat. It's it's the most inefficient use of electricity we have, and that's why heating with something like a windmill is so dadgone hard. It, it takes a lot of revolutions to produce you know a few BTUs of heat. So the best source of heat is a direct source of heat. Um, one of the things we keep is we have a couple of the Big Buddy uh, heaters. They throw out, I think, on full-on power, 14,000 BTUs of heat. It's a lot of heat. A kerosene heater, I'd recommend one or the other. Uh, people are afraid of them. Modern ones have sensors. They shut off. If they're tipped over, they sit off. Low oxygen, they shut off. Um, you know, Being able to have at least one room kept nice and warm, During something like this is great, and I like the the, the kerosene and the butt and the propane buddy heaters because they're portable, so they can go out to a bug out location. They go to a fishing shack. If you have a, a particularly cool night and it's just one, you know, early freeze, and you've got some stuff, you know, skating along in a greenhouse, and you want to get them through it, you can set it out there and run it for a night on low. It'll keep things warm enough in there that at least the stuff won't die on you. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So I think that you kind of have to look at this from a standpoint of day-to-day -day heating and then emergency heating. And to me, the more redundancies we can place into that, the better. The other thing you might want to look at is what would it cost to plumb in some lines for propane and set up some propane space heaters that are professionally installed and get you know a 500-gallon tank of propane. Not just for heating, but backup heating, and then that propane can do other things for you, which I'll save for a question that's coming a little bit later in the show. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Nick up here in Ontario, Canada. I got a question. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, water storage. I'm in a small apartment. I don't have the ability to have large uh, reservoirs. I have... I'm looking at for your opinion on water bottles versus items like the water bricks or large water containers as opposed to just water bottles. Um, any ideas you have on that would be much appreciated. Again, doing a great job. Keep it up. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to answer this one in a, a couple different viewpoints. So I'm going to answer it for you in an apartment, and then I'm going to expand it out to people that may have more resources available on space. 
Um, let's start off with the water brick uh, in and of itself. I find the water brick to be a problem in search of a solution. I think it's overpriced. I think it's pointless. I don't think I'll ever own one. I don't think I'll ever buy one. I don't care how many people I piss off by saying that to sell them. It is a bottle in a square shape. That is all that it is. It is nothing more, and it is not worth $250 roughly to store about 55 gallons of water with a freaking water brick. The entire point is that it stacks and stores neatly, and you can take it with you in small quantities, and it's strong. Uh, this is what you do. Uh, if you don't drink soda, which I don't because I don't think it's good for you, you will probably know somebody that does. Two-liter soda bottles are extremely strong. Fill one up with water, drop it on the ground, you will see what I mean. It, they're much stronger than something like a milk jug. Get a bunch of those, rinse them out, fill them up with water. You are good to go. If you really feel better about yourself for it, put one drop of bleach in them when you put your water in there. I won't do it. It is not necessary. But if it makes you feel better, you can do that. If you want them to stack neatly, there are still sources available, very inexpensively or cheap or free, of the old-style milk crates. About nine of them will fit perfectly in there. Then they will stack on top of each other. You can then make as much water as you want for the price of turning on your faucet. And you can take the $250 that you would have spent to buy these stupid freaking water bricks and buy other things like food for your prepping needs. Or a Berkey system which will let you purify water by filtering it uh, in just about any situation. And then you'll be able to make... Thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water with stuff that maybe you would catch off a roof. So I think the water brick is like taking your money and throwing it away. So if you want small containers for water, use two-liter soda bottles. And I'll tell you partly why. They're food grade. We all know that because food comes in them. But because soda is acidic... They have to be able to handle the acid, so they're much stronger construction than something like a milk jug or a lot of times like an iced tea jug or something like that you find in a refrigerated section. Two-liter soda bottles. Taking that to another level, if you have a deep freezer, cover unless you are out of space for your food, cover in the entire bottom of your deep freezer in these things. Uh, if your freezer goes off during a power outage, they will buy you a day at least keeping your freezer cool. And if you defrost them, they're still water. All right, And they'll last in there forever. So there you go. There's your portable, cheap water storage, two-liter soda bottles. I guarantee you, you know someone that will save them for you to a point where you go, I don't need any more. Stop doing it. Right? you got a family with kids that feeds their kids that garbage. They will go through a case of those damn things a week. And you will soon have all the water stored that you want to store in small units, and it won't cost you any money. Please put your money into something productive, not a blue bottle to put water in that's shaped like a square. Now, moving up to, well, if I want to store large amounts of water, if you look at a good 55-gallon food-grade barrel, you're going to pay new in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 bucks for one, and that's still less than your water brick. Yes, it's stationary, yes, it's large, but yes, it holds a lot of water, and if put into some type of elevated situation, it also provides water pressure. Even in a small apartment, you may have a place where you can put a 55-gallon uh, drum of water, and if you can elevate it like in a closet somewhere and then run a hose out of the bottom and, and run it to something like your bathtub or your shower... You can have pressurized water when the water's off. That would also be better than the stupid water brick. 
Uh, so that's another thought for you, though I don't think it's ideal in an apartment. But it certainly is a better idea than something like the water brick, which is a good way to waste your money. Another option is to get the smaller 30-gallon uh, water containers like the, the blue ones, like Steve recommends you more to use to store fuel in. Since they're for water, you can put water in there. They're a lot easier to move around and manhandle. But, I mean, you're still looking with a 30-gallon drum at, like, 240 pounds. Uh, the smaller 15-gallon ones, like Steve recommends, now you're, you're looking at something that's like 115 pounds. The average adult man can move that around. Uh, and that can be then put up onto something, and, and you can create pressure with that. So that would be another kind of mid-gap measure. If you have a house, right, if you're not in an apartment, and you want to store a lot of water, uh, and you want to be able to put pressure on it, it is very difficult to be a 500 to 1,000-gallon tank that you can buy from Tractor Supply for right at about a dollar a gallon. A thousand gallon one will cost you around 900 and some bucks and a 550 gallon one will cost you 549.99, basically a dollar a gallon. It is food grade, it is black. The water will not turn green in it. It holds a crap load of water. You can take a garden hose and stick it in there and fill it up or you can set it up for rain catchment. If you want to keep that water rotated and nice and fresh tasting, every time you water your garden, make sure you have a way on the bottom of it to let water out through a hose. Use it to water your garden and take your new your, your, your water out of your house and refill it. And that way you'll have it constantly rotated or do that once or twice a month if you really think you need to. You don't, but if it makes you feel better, you can do that. Um, just elevating that a few feet, Above the height that you would normally want to use it at will give you on-demand pressurized water anytime you want. And a 550-gallon tank isn't that huge. It's not something that you're going to like really have to work hard to conceal. If you want to completely you know, board it in and make it look pretty and put trees and plants that crawl up on it, which is a great idea because it's even more shade to keep sunlight off the water, keep the water cool and stuff like that, you can do it. I would go out and I would definitely put in something like a 500-ish gallon tank like that long before I would go out and spend half of that to put away a quarter of the amount of water in a stupid brick. If you want water that's movable and storable, put it in two-liter soda bottles. If you want it to stack, get milk crates to put it in, and you will not have a problem. The other thing, these bottles are extremely strong. If you just want them to stack, not necessarily be grab and go, but just stack neatly, and you put a group of them in a, a place where they have a hard floor where they'll sit level, and you take yourself a piece of plywood and set it up on the top since they're all the same height, you'll have another level surface, and you can put another layer of them right there. Another thing you may find in some warehouse stores and stuff like that, they have these things that are specifically designed to stack them in, 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 in rows. Sometimes they'll give them to you. These are usually made out of plastic. They usually hold about 12 of them, and then another one sits in another layer. They have a, a big space for the bottom of the two-liter bottle to go. They have a small space that goes over the top and another big space on that, that top piece, and you can get those sometimes for nothing as well. I don't know anything better to sm store water in small movable amounts then than those, and anybody that buys a water brick, you have thrown your money away. I'm sorry to put it that way. It's just how I feel. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Michael in Virginia. Uh, thanks for the great podcast that you're putting out there. My question is about retreat location. Um, if you read people like Jim Rawls and others, 
Um, they seem to, to say that you need to, to be safe from the golden horde that's going to come out of the cities when things collapse. You need to be three to six hours away from um, all metropolitan areas or, or highways, things like that. Um, most of the time they say you should be in the Pacific Northwest. Um, that seems to that seems to be the regular theme. Just read a book, Beyond Collapse, by T. Joseph Miller Jr. It seems to be somewhat counter to that. He doesn't seem to believe that there will be any ability for large groups to be supported to be able to come out of the cities like that. Just thought I'd ask your thoughts on that. I live in rural Virginia, and um, I'm within two hours of of major metropolitan areas. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Repeat after me. Patriots, The Coming Collapse is a fictional book. Patriots, The Coming Collapse is a fictional book. Patriots, The Coming Collapse is a fictional book. I like James Rawls. I, I really do. You can stop repeating after me now. Uh, I, I do. And I like a lot of the work he does and a lot of the insights he has and a lot of thoughts on tactical things are very, very astute and very, very dead on. But it ain't going to freaking happen. Oh, my God. I tell you what. we got to let go of this, guys. This fantasy Red Dawn Second World War bullshit scenario that the Golden Hordes are going to run around on motorcycles with tattoos and come rape children. I mean, come on. Here's the thing. You want a fallback location? Here's my rule. Buy it where you want it, where you can afford it, where it works for you. Get out of the suburbs. There it is. I would prefer that you have a bug out location two hours away from you um, that isn't six hours from a major metropolitan area. And guess what? The All the people that say the minimal distance is, you know what? If you talk to them, if they'll be honest with you, you'll say, well, how far is yours? Hey, the minimal distance is six hours. How far is yours? Six hours and 13 minutes. Gee, how'd you come up with six hours? You've done the best you can. Then you've convinced yourself that's the minimal standard, and you'll be great, and everybody else is screwed. That's where a lot of this stuff comes from. It, it really does. I'd rather you have 90 minutes away. If it gets you out of the the metro mess scenarios, and it's not a suburban everybody you know living on top of each other same difference thing, it has resources available, has a little bit of land to go along with it, has all of that going for it, and you can actually go there often and actually put it into uh, good use. And if something does happen, you can get there relatively quickly. That would be much better. Then, well, it's six hours away, but I can't get there. Now I'm screwed, right? I mean, there's there's balance in all things. But this whole golden horde crap, the whole thing will just melt into oblivion. There'll be nothing left. And people will just go around shooting each other nonstop, right? The doomsday prepper stuff. Let it Go! It isn't going to happen. If it did happen, do you know what your government do, would do? And I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying this is what they would do. One drone. One... They're going down Mad Max and down the road. Done. The end. Over. Finished. Talk to a veteran of the Afghan or Iraqi war. Ask them what Allah's waiting room is. Okay, you don't build the police state apparatus that we have, and then if your 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 monarchy is threatened, your plutocracy is threatened, fail to use it. There's good and bad to that. There's a lot more bad than good. 
But one thing you know you're not going to get is without rule of law, 24-7, 365, coast-to-coast, border-to-border. It ain't going to happen. Stop thinking that way. Start planning for what is going to happen. Right? This is what we have to start doing as preppers as a whole. We have to stop saying, well, one day the Mayans are going to kill us like they're supposed to today. Or the EMP, the EMP thing, guys, that's another one. You guys that are obsessed with it, you got to let go. Because let me tell you the truth about EMP. Here's how EMP works. Everything's gone or, very, or, or a small area is affected. Those are your two outcomes. And this crap, well, North Korea has a bomb. And they, the bomb that North Korea has, if they have one, by our best estimate. Or the bombs that we know that India or Pakistan have, right? Um, <laughs> you're talking making the lights flicker in a lot of areas. The type of weapon you need for a effective EMP strike is something that's possessed by the Soviet Union and the United States of America for a really broad scale one. That's, you know, um, could it ever happen? Yeah. Is that what you should plan for? No. How about planning for the fact that this country is headed for a deep economic recession? When we have a deep economic recession, no, no, no. The whole thing won't fall into oblivion, and the people that are in the government won't run away and go to France or something stupid like that and leave some idiot from Tennessee in charge who's going to take over and become the new president, whatever the guy's name was in the two books. I, I, I'm sorry, guys. You, you, you can't keep thinking this way. What's likely to happen? You're going to get have to leave your house because of riots. All right? um, there's a pandemic, and they're about to impose a lockdown, and you want to get further out before it happens. Um, there is an economic collapse, and because of that, in spite of everything you've done, you're going to end up losing your house, but you have a low-cost alternative that you can fall back to. Some kind of major event does occur, and there is a lot of rioting in the streets, and there is a lot of danger and a lot of death and a lot of crime, and you want to back off from it until order is at least somewhat restored. These are all things that can and possibly will happen in your lifetime. Road Warrior ain't happening. Patriots to come and collapse ain't happening. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. You got it. It ain't happening. It'll take a one in a million shot from like something like coronal mass ejection or an EMP to do that. And even then, it ain't going to be the way these people think. It's going to be quick and bloody, and half of the people that are a problem are going to be dead within a month. This whole thing where everything's shut down, but yet some magical way, these people can just move around and do all this stuff, and everybody lets them and no one kills them, be it authority or otherwise, it's just stupid. And... I'm just going to let it there. I've said this enough. I've talked about it enough before. When it comes to a retreat location, pick what works for you that you're actually going to be able to use, that you're actually going to be able to afford, that you're actually going to be turn, able to turn into something that does it the way that you need it done, and a place, for God's sakes, that you can get to significantly often enough to be able to turn it into something. And Patriots and books like that are great for entertainment. They make us think. They actually give you a lot of really great constructive ideas, but they're about as far from reality as something like, oh, I don't know, what was the Fraggle Rock? Look up Fraggle Rock if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's about as close to reality as Fraggle Rock. Let's take another one. Okay, Jack, I want to try this again. This is J.D. from Ohio, and my question for you is on the aspects of nutrition, what would be better under a limited budget? Should you focus on organic produce and juices, or should you focus more on the organic free-range meat. Thank you for your help. Have a great day.
Well, in, in, in this question, I'm going to say that you should eat the healthiest stuff you can get no matter what it is, but it's more important what you're eating than the source of it in a lot of ways. I would rather you eat high-quality meat products, that even that aren't grass-fed or organic, than eat organic wheat. Because I think wheat is basically a chronic toxin in the body. I think that things like rice and potatoes and things like that, a little bit less. Since you already seem to be there, because you're asking about more of a vegetable and fruit thing versus meat, I'll accept that you, you're already there mentally, but I want to put that out there for everybody else. Um, I would definitely focus on the protein, and one of the things you can do is understand that doesn't mean you have to eat all 100% organic protein or pastured protein. Probably the best value out there are good naturally raised, you know, hormone-free organic chicken. And that's one way that you can kind of stretch things. And you'll find that the cost of buying that type of meat will go drastically down if you're buying a whole bird versus breast cutlets and things like that. So even if you're a person like me that likes chicken wings, I love chicken wings. I don't know what it is, man. I just think they're the greatest thing in the world. I love to make chicken. I make garlic, chili, and all kinds of great stuff. But there's no reason you can't buy 10 chickens and, and piece them out so you can put them in the leg quarters, wings, and breasts. And then package them up and freeze them and use them. And you may be able to find a local producer of things like pastured birds or whatever where you can save a lot of money buying them that way. Or even in the store you can buy them that way. So that would be one way. Another thing that I have found that's very affordable uh, it, it, with the grass-fed beef is ground beef. The ground beef seems to be a lot more affordable than the steaks and things like that. So if we make a meal or three a week using those products, and that way we're reducing the amount of the mass meat market stuff, because not everybody can afford to eat grass-fed organic meat every day. They just can't. So do what you can where you can. I think another great source that's one of the lowest cost ways to step up is your milk and your eggs. I, you know, I try to get, uh, you know, you know, local raw milk wherever I can, but if we have to buy it, and I don't do a lot with milk, so it's usually for cooking or coffee or something like that. Just organic is a step up. And it's not, it's so, the, the, the price differential is something that I don't understand why anybody doesn't do it. And then eggs, organic, uh, organic eggs and organic free range, if you can get that, you know, they're a dollar a dozen more. So now we can at least start to take some piece of that, and if we can get some organic nitrate-free nitrate bacon and have a couple breakfasts with that a week, now we're starting to get high-quality high protein, high-quality fat into our bodies. The other thing is look at things like, okay, if I have to buy vegetables, and this week I legitimately say, you know what, I can't buy the, the, the green peppers and, and snow peas uh, that are uh, organic. I, I just can't afford it. got to buy the regular ones. Good quality organic olive oil that you're cooking in them, in them in though, or when you're doing you know your your steak and you're you're maybe making something like a fajitas and you're doing it in a, in a cast iron skillet. Save that bacon grease, that high quality bacon grease. Put that back into the mix. Stop being afraid of fat. I know you're probably not based on your question, but a lot of Americans are afraid of fat. We've been lied to. We've been lied to. I stopped eating carbohydrates in large amounts and I started eating good quality protein and good quality fat in large amounts and I lost 80 pounds. So anybody that tells me it doesn't work can kiss my now skinnier ass. Because it's just, it's just a fact. And there's been so many people in this audience who have done the same thing and had the same results. There's, there's a point where you can't argue with results. 
And I think we've reached that with kind of this paleo, moderate to low-carb lifestyle. Um, I would tell you, though, that there's a lot of good deals in organic produce, and part of it is finding seasonality and things like that. You'll pay less a lot of times for tomatoes and peppers and things like that that are locally grown at a farmer's market than you ever will at any grocery store, whether it's mass-produced or uh, not mass-produced. And understand that if you talk to the person that grew, grew your food, don't ask, is this USDA certified organic? It doesn't freaking matter. You know, it's a label that the government controls. Do you use pesticides? No. Do you use herbicides? No. Good. Buy it. It's better quality than anything. Locally grown without pesticide and herbicide. And I don't care if they use fertilizer. I don't want them using fertilizer. I really don't. I think it's not good for the land. But it isn't going to hurt you that your food had fertilizer used on it. The food quality is just going to be fine. It would be better other way. But most people that aren't using pesticides and herbicides are already mitigating any use of fertilizers at all. So I'd rather you eat pesticide-free, herbicide-free, GMO-free, locally grown produce. So start looking at ways to expand it. Growing some of your own is a great idea. We talk about it all the time, so leave it out. But if I've got to make a clear-cut decision this week, something either column A or column B is going to come from the, the broad-spectrum mass market, yeah, I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going to go toward the protein and the fats. Because that's where I'm going to get the majority of my caloric intake from. Do you know how many peppers you have to eat to get a couple hundred calories out of it? You know, and, and we need calories. Calories aren't all, but if you're eating 12,000 a day or something, you got a problem, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a limit to how many we need, but we need, our, our fuel is caloric intake. And I want that caloric intake to come from protein and fat. And because the majority of it's coming from there, that's where I'm going to put my emphasis. But I'm going to try to be smart about it. And if I have to eat a steak tonight that, that came from, you know, Kroger's off the, the, the feed lot, because that's what I can afford, if, tomorrow then maybe I'm going to eat a hamburger from grass-fed beef, and the next day I'm going to eat some uh, you know, half a chicken that was made from pastured poultry. And then I'm going to go back to it. And I'm going to reduce. Don't think it's all or nothing is, is my big message there. Reduce wherein as you can and get smarter and smarter about it and learn to stretch things further and further. We'll buy a chicken. We'll have chicken for dinner. We'll have chicken salad sandwich the next day. We'll throw the whole damn chicken into a pot and make chicken soup on the next day. And when we've done that, then I can afford to buy organ, you know, organics. And, and understand, some of the produce stuff is not much more expensive. Celery and carrots are great deals in organic, and they're good paleo sources, especially the celery. So maybe it's not all or nothing. Spread it out and figure out where your biggest offenders are. I will tell you, when it comes to pesticide residue, the worst thing in the world are sweet peppers. They're literally seething in it, which is a shame because peppers are relatively pest-free plants. But the pesticide residue in your large bell peppers is terrible. It's why we grow so many of them ourselves because we, you know, you can't always get really nice organic ones either. You can't always find them at the farmer's market, but boy, they're easy to grow in a lot of areas. So that's one place to be careful. So it might be you're going to focus mostly on the meat, but we're going to make a conscious decision to do eggs, Milk, peppers, and celery organic as well. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Roswell, one of mods from the forum. Um, I actually had two questions for you. Um, the first question was, my I recently just got a couple pieces of uh, antique silver um, dinnerware, basically. 
and they don't they're just kind of mismatched they don't match any set so I was looking for a way to sell them and um, to basically get the most amount of money for them because they are silver um, so I'm not sure what how to go about this who I would go to uh, with our pawn dealer uh, silversmith um, so just looking for any thoughts you have on that subject the uh, the other question I have is really kind of off the wall um, I know you do reptiles but I have a turtle and uh, he's an amphibious turtle so he he's got a five gallon aquarium um, but every month or so I have to so I was just wondering um, would that be should I be saving the order would that be something good to add to my plants um I do a lot of vermicomposting. I add worm tea to them, and I was thinking about aquaponics. And um, so I didn't know if there are certain plants I should put that on that would be more accepting of the nutrients um, that would better filter it out. Um, so yeah, just let me uh, hear what your thoughts are on the subject. All right, thanks, and thank you for all you do. Uh, let's start with the silver question first, and this is a really easy one, honestly, if you if you think about it, and, and that is that um, you, the best thing that you have at your disposal for getting pricing to sell anything locally that you can sell to pawn and metal dealers and things like that is called a telephone. Don't drive all over the place. The the, the extra five bucks you get will be consumed by your gas tank. Look up pawn shops, silver dealers, and places like that, and call them on the phone and simply say, do you buy sterling silver? And they'll say yes or no. And if they say yes, say what do you pay per, per ounce or per pound, over spot or under spot, or what are you paying today, and write it down. Call about five places, whoever gives you the best price, take it over there and sell it to them. Now, you do want to make sure you're actually, you actually have silver. Most of the time, people that think they do do, but sometimes you don't. And one thing you're going to want to look for is you're going to see marked on any uh, sterling silver in this country, some stuff that comes from overseas may have some weird markings or something, but usually you're going to see the word sterling in all capsule, capital letters, uh, or you'll see .925 or 925-1000. If you see any of those, unless it's a forgery, which generally wasn't done a lot, you're looking at sterling silver. And the reason you see 925 is it's 92.5% uh, silver. That's how you make sterling silver. It's an alloy, and it's designed to be a little harder than pure silver, and that's why it has some other stuff in it. Um, but the thing is that everybody always worries about when you buy or sell silver and gold getting ripped off, and then they go down and they, they spend $175 on groceries this week, and they don't even really worry about what the other grocery store would have sold it for. It's a commodity. It's like anything else. And it actually is a lot easier to make sure you're being dealt with honestly than just about any other commodity out there. It's certainly easier to be sure that you're being dealt with uh, fairly about than, let's say, diamonds. If you are selling diamonds, unless you are an expert, how do you know you're getting the best price? You, you really don't. And if you call 10 different people to buy diamonds and say, what do you pay by the carat? They're going to say, we, we don't do it that way. Because a one-carat diamond next to another one-carat diamond, one may be practically junk and the other one may be extremely expensive because it's virtually flawless. So I'd have to look at your diamonds and evaluate them and give you a price based on cut and clarity and color and all that other stuff. 
But if you ask somebody, what do you pay an ounce for silver, and they say, we have to see it first, you say, no. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't have to see it first. It's sterling. Well, we only buy it if we check it out. Oh, I understand that. I, I would expect it if it wasn't real, you would tell me no. But what do you pay for pre-64 junk silver coin per, per ounce or per dollar, right? What do you pay per ounce or per pound of sterling silver flatware? What do you pay, right? And they'll say, well, you know, if it's really nice, we might want it for more than just the base. I know that. You know that, and I know that. Assuming it's not, a, you just get a price. They won't give you a price. Fine, I'll talk to somebody else. And anything you're going to sell in the silver and gold market, that's the beauty of it. There's always a base price. Now, if it's some kind of rarity, numismatic value, artistic value, whatever, that's fine. But when you're just concerned with selling it for its underlying value, call four or five people. Whoever gives you the best price is probably the person to deal with. Go down there and sell it to them and stop making it complicated. Now, turtle water. Uh, when you're dealing with any reptile, you always deal with the, pro the possibility of salmonella. So I wouldn't want this water making direct contact with anything that I'm going to eat, specifically that might get eaten without being cooked. In the ground, there's probably a lot of waste matter in there, nitrites, nitrates, and waste material that is actually probably pretty beneficial. I don't think it would be a problem to use it direct, but to spread it out, I would probably mix it at about a 1 to 5 ratio. So in a 5-gallon bucket, I'd use about a gallon of this stuff, and I would just use it when you water, and I would think it would do fine for anything. Um, the risk of any kind of contamination is actually a lot lower than all of the freaky, freak out, worry about everything, you know, worry some willy guys would worry about. And freak, oh my God, you're gonna die with that kind of person, you know the, you know the crazy soccer mom that has the kid bundled up like in the it was the Christmas story where the kid can't put their arms down to go out when it's 40 degrees outside. Those kind of people would freak out and worry about it. You're, you're a normal person, don't worry about it. Um, but I probably would dilute it, not. So much to like, you know, if you have something that's like too, too intense, you maybe want to dilute it down. I'd just say to get more out of it. And it's probably going to put all kinds of little things into your soil. So I would just once a month when you do your tank change, um, dilute that at about a five to one ratio, uh, with, you know, one part of that to five parts water. And I would use it pretty quick. I'd go ahead and get it used. Just get it on the ground. Put it wherever you need it. I wouldn't worry about what you're using it on. But anything like if you had strawberries, where you're going to be dumping it on the actual part you're going to be eating, I, I wouldn't do that just to mitigate the risk that's already pretty well mitigated, assuming you're practicing good sanitation and things like that. But soil-based watering, I would do it all day long. And anybody that worries about it, I would tell them to go find something else to worry about. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I had a question for you about burying a storage container. I have a detached garage. I'm getting ready to tear down and build an attached garage. I thought it would be kind of cool to put a 20-foot uh, storage container under there. I didn't know if you had any advice or experience on how much gravel to put underneath and how much to reinforce it. Thank you very much. On the gravel, I'm going to say 6 to 10 inches minimum and a foot would be even better. Um, just to get good drainage. You're going to want to get as good a drainage as you can in a situation like this. Um, that's your biggest threat to your structure is the water accumulating at the bottom. So that's going to be my, my, my advice there on reinforcing it more than you think. Uh, that's, that's a, these containers have immense ability to support weight on their four corners. Okay. In the center, if you walk on one, you feel it bow in. 
And just a few inches of dirt cover over top of one of these is a lot more weight than most people understand. Um, we actually had a listener way back over two years ago. It would have been November 30th, 2010. I'm looking at the episode right now, episode 560, called Shipping Container Construction, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, that came on and talked about his experience with constructing things with shipping containers. I'm going to recommend you listen to that episode to get a lot more than I'm going to give you here. Let me just say with... Uh, The length, though, on them. Generally, you've got them in three standard sizes, 20 feet, uh, 40 feet, and 45 feet. And a lot of people think, well, I'll get a 20-foot one because it'll cost less. It won't cost less. Uh, when it comes to buying used shipping containers, you will pay just about the same amount of money for a 40-footer as a 20-footer. And that's a lot of times because people want the smaller ones, so they're more desirable. It doesn't cost a lot more other than your materials like your gravel to bury a 40-footer. So it a lot of times makes sense to buy a bigger one. I also would, you know, think about this whole under my garage thing a little bit. Are you going to pour a slab? Is it just going to be dirt, garage, floor garage, what have you? Uh, because if you add concrete, you're adding even more weight. And if you're doing this in any kind of an area where you're going to have to have an inspection or something done, you could run into a lot more trouble putting it actually under your garage than just maybe just not quite under your garage, but maybe creating a walkout access that walks out into the garage, so to speak. It might be easier to do logistically and permit-wise. I'm not an expert on shipping containers, but I think there's a lot that can be done with them. And I'm going to work to try to get some more people that have experience with them on the show uh, to discuss construction with them because I know there's a lot of interest in it. I have a lot of interest myself. I actually have an idea uh, for using them where they're not actually buried completely. I'm thinking more of like two or three feet into the ground and then bermed up and then blend that berm into the landscape. might be a great way to do things. Um, with a little bit less stress than you'd get and a little bit less work than you would get from actually excavating them and putting them completely underground and giving them a tremendous amount of support, making them very hidden, but making the entryway a little bit uh, less of a, a job to get in and out of them. Everybody wants a bunker, uh, but what protects a bunker is earth, not depth. It's the fact that the earth is there in the first place, and you can build up as easy as you can build down. If you look at a lot of ammo storage facilities, it's exactly how they're done. By kind of doing a trade-off, I think that you could get away with a lot less problems with drainage and things like that or building them into a hillside where you're only burying the back end of it and you're kind of forming around it. Um, but the big thing is with the support, and that's why I went ahead and talked. I wanted to talk about this today because I think you can get into a lot of trouble if you underestimate that. I've actually... Um, talked to quite a few people that have had problems with collapses and cave-ins on them and having them f fail. And you almost have to frame them out at about every six feet. Uh, and it can be done with wood. I mean, lumber's tough stuff. If it's done right and you know what you're doing, you frame it out with lumber. I've seen them framed out with steel, but they have to be framed out. And if you don't frame them out, they're going to fail. Even with just a couple inches of dirt over them, you've got to understand the weight. If you're talking four inches of cover, eight foot wide, 40 foot long, you're talking tons and tons and tons of weight. We start doing other things, and you, you can get into some interesting conundrums. Now, an interesting thing would be that if you did it under concrete, a concrete slab, that concrete could be supported uh, and 
basically have the you know you could if you did it under concrete you could basically have it set up to where you'd look down and see the top of the dadgone thing so it's not it's, it's just really surrounded and the sides are, are pretty stable it's not something I would do alone let me put it to you that way if you have to ask you probably need professional help to do it safely and I wanted to bring that up too because I know how much interest there is and any old fool can get his hands on a backhoe in a shipping container uh, and you may, at very best, cost yourself a lot of money and a lot of supplies, or at very worst, end up dead. And it's something I think that you need to get professional help with to do right. And, and that does wrap things up, but I realized something uh, here at the end. I'm going to kind of backpedal to the guy that asked about supplemental heating. I don't know why it went out of my head. I had kicked it, you know, kicked, punted, so to speak, with an earlier question about propane. Um, but one of the things that that gentleman said, because I talked about the wood stoves and the wood furnaces and things like that, was we don't have any gas lines, so gas isn't an option. I think that um, it's really a good idea for anybody that has concerns with energy, fuel, heating, to consider bringing in a pro, a, priest, you know, a pig, basically, 100-gallon, 500-gallon, or bigger tank. Um, it's generally speaking that the company you buy the propane from will give you the tank. Uh, you're basically leasing it, but it's a very low or no charge. It's basically they'll put the tank there and you buy the propane from them. And every time you need more, they, they come and fill it up. There's so many advantages there beyond heat. If you have it, you can use it for heat. You can use it for cooking, right, which is another type of heat utilization. But you can get a generator that will run off of it. Uh, it has a lot of additional flexibility. So I'm sorry I left that out back when I was answering that question, but it is a, uh, it's a huge advantage. And you can bring in, usually you can bring in up to 2,000 gallons of it before you have to file any kind of permits or anything like that. That's a, that's a lot of sustainability. And when I was talking about plumbing in some gas heat heaters and that, that's what I left out is that if you put in, you know, your, your propane pig, so to speak, and you are running even a gas generator. It's just, or if you're running your, you, let's say you have a thousand pound pig and you have a whole house backup generator that runs on propane. No problem. It'll run a long time on that. But if you don't use your central heat while you're in that backup mode and you're using space propane-based space heaters as an emergency redundancy during that period, the effective utilization of the propane versus electricity will still last longer than running your central heating off of that, and you can heat individual rooms. So I'm sorry I left that out when I was talking about the, the emergency heating, wood heating thing, but I would definitely say that anybody out there, consider bringing in your own gas if you don't have access to grid gas. Um, it's a redundancy that lasts if everything fails, at least that's still there. And when you look at a five, even 500 gallons, you're talking about a lot of sustainability with 500 gallons of propane, and it stores forever. There's no rotation necessary. It doesn't go bad. It is what it is. You, as long as it doesn't leak out, you can come back 20 years later and fire it up, and it's going to work just fine for you. So I wanted to make sure I backfilled that little bit. And with that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, but 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.